Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to Cabin Devil. As you can guess, we're going to be talking about partiality at some point in chapter two of the book of James as we do the talk through the book of James. Welcome to Cabin Devils. This is the 3rd of July, 2022. You could actually say that this is the middle of the year and you would be right. We are still keeping the same goal here at Cabin Devils and we are saying that we come to connect and remain connected in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I pray that you will remain connected. He said in his word that I am the vine, you are the branches. Remain in me and I in you. Without me, you can do nothing. Those are quite some absolutes when you hear uh, those verses um, uh, and being recited in the book of John. Those are absolutes. It says, remain in me and I in you. And say, without me, you can do nothing. There's really no room to bargain with that. Without me, you can do nothing. That's why we're here tonight, so that we can remain connected, continue talking about his work. Let me read for you something that I found interesting as I was looking at uh, Bruce Wilkinson's talk through the Bible. At the beginning of the book of James, his commentary on the book of James, this is what he said that I want to believe is really profound. It's, for me, <laughs> a whole summary of the book. He says, faith without works cannot be called faith. It is dead. And a dead faith is worse than no faith at all. Faith must work. It must produce. It must be visible. Verbal faith is not enough. Mental faith is insufficient. Faith must move into action. Throughout his epistle to the Jewish believer, James integrates faith and everyday practical experiences by stressing the truth, the true faith that works. It endures trials. It obeys God's word. It produces doers. It harbors no prejudice. It controls the tongue. It acts wisely. It provides the power to resist the devil. It waits patiently for the coming Lord. And that's words uh, by Bruce Wilkinson in his uh, commentary, Talk Through the Bible. Today, we continue with chapter two of James. We're doing a series on Talk Through the Book of James. And we're just talking through. We're just talking through today. I hope to be joined by Elena. Elena, if you're ready, please go ahead and call in. But meanwhile, Dr. John, why don't you unmute your mic and just let us know how you're doing. Say hello to the listeners, Dr. John, if that is you. Your code name there is quite difficult to, <laughs> uh, to decode, but I hope that's you. Welcome to the show. Good evening. Yeah, good evening, David. Uh, and, and I'm happy to be here from Florida. It's usually sunny uh, it, this time over here. It's uh, two o'clock in the afternoon. Uh, I know you guys are at nine o'clock in the evening over there, but uh, we've got some rain showers in the, in the sky. So I'm thrilled to be with you and your group here. And, uh, and I don't know how many of your listeners know, but I was thrilled to see you in person here uh, for uh, a few weeks and actually to have you in person in some of my classes. In fact, you stood in and taught for me uh, one week uh, in April uh, when I was out with the COVID. So I much appreciate uh, your help and uh, God allowing us to kind of work as a team uh, over these uh you know, past couple of months. It is a privilege uh, to be in your class. I was telling your students, and I told this to you, that two weeks before that, I had just graduated with a bachelor's in biblical studies, and they were my first students. 
privilege. I'm, I'm telling you, it was awesome uh, just sitting in your class, even towards the end of, uh, of that class, uh, to be able to talk about uh, God's word. Um, I, I know it was intimidating to have a professor who speaks Greek and lives in Greek, I mean, in Greece, <laughs> as part of the class, that that was intimidating. But it was a good class. Thank you. And thank you for having us. Elena, how have you been? I hope that you're doing well. I heard you had a sore throat. Is it COVID? Um, luckily, the doctor refused to do a COVID test, so maybe that's a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> Someone was asking if the doctor is my friend. Maybe that's why he refused. So I'm okay. I've just received uh, a few meds, but yeah, I'm mm. all right. Thank you, Jeremy. I'm looking forward to the show and just talking through uh, chapter two. Especially the bit mm. about the faith and the deeds. There can be lots of mm. confusion about those. So I'm looking forward to Awesome. That. Awesome. Awesome. And I thank you so much for uh, choosing again to be here with us. I'm going to ask you to listen intently to Dr. John and just come up with questions as we simply talk through the book of James. You guys will not believe, but when I reached out to these speakers, um, particularly Dr. John was asking me for details about what we're going to be covering today. And guess what? Just like chapter one, I told Dr. John that, hey, I have three questions for you. What verse stands out for you? And the second question is, what other verse stands out for you? And then the third question is, is there any other verse that stands out for you <laughs> in chapter three? And that will be it. That will be it. Why? Because we simply want to talk through the book of James. Nothing complicated, although we are going to face some very difficult things to reconcile. I believe that we'll come to the bottom of this. I want this to be as practical as possible. I want us to leave today um, with simple answers to everyday problems. But I'm going to ask you in the chat, if you, win, if you may, just type any questions you may have for Dr. John. I'm glad that he's here. He, he has a class. He teaches at the Bible school and he'll be able to answer whatever questions that you may have coming from the book of James, specifically chapter two. But feel free to ask any of the other questions that may come to mind. Dr. John, question number one, what verse or truth stands out for you from chapter two? For me, David, uh, the verse that stands out is actually the last verse. Um, and any of your listeners who, who listened when I was talking about how the human being is put together uh, would know why that is my verse that jumps out. It says, for as the body apart from the spirit is dead, also faith apart from works is dead. And you know how we talked, uh, uh, gosh, it's over a year ago now, but we talked about how, uh, how a living soul comes to be, and that's uh, when you connect a spirit with a body. So a, a dead body, which is, a, a, is just a corpse, uh, has a spirit that enlivens it, and that is what, uh, that's what makes a, a living soul. And, and so I think what James is using is an example there that people can understand. Uh, when the spirit departs from the body, uh, you just see a, a dead body. It's, it's the, the, you know, it's not, it's no longer uh, a person. Uh, the, the, the spirit of the person has left. And I think that's the gist of what uh, James is talking about here. If you say that you have faith, 
and you have no works, you simply have a dead body. And, you know, and a dead body isn't going to get up and move around. Uh, so you have to actually see the evidence. You have to see the works that the uh, body uh, is doing something and, and acting uh, in a certain way. And so hopefully we'll talk about that. But that's, that's the verse that jumps out to me because it, it sort of summarizes uh, James's view of this whole second uh, chapter. Awesome. Um, I'm glad that we're getting there. I know we've skipped something here to do with partiality. And let me just take the listeners back to that uh, briefly. But I, I've taken some time, Dr. John, just thinking about um, what you just said concerning works and faith. And it's it's quite, it's quite um, what's the word? It's, it's a very vivid picture painted in verse 23, 26, sorry. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, also faith apart from works is dead. That, that, that is very absolute. It's, it gives no room for one or the other. And it's really the instance of what we're going to be discussing. It's just difficult to swallow. I've also heard, and we talked about this last week, that the book of James was one of the books that was uh, uh, contested. Um, I think the last to be added to the New Testament canon, particularly because of this teaching. And I pray that we'll find some answers tonight. But Elena, any any comments? You've done BSF for how many years now? You must have come across these things. Um, is there anything that comes to mind when we think about works and, and faith being dead without works? Elena, anything comes to mind? Or any questions that come to mind? I I had never um, had the illustration the way Doctor John has shared it. The one of the dead body that faith mm. is the dead body and it won't get up and move around. Um, it's the deeds that make it move around. So that's that's been very interesting. But I think usually the 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 question or the dilemma. So many times we everyone is pushing the faith beat. And when someone seems like they are pushing that, it feels like, okay, now you're making us, you're saying that we have to do things to look good, to earn salvation and all those things. So usually that's that's the dilemma uh, for many people. But uh, yeah, I'm just, uh, no questions yet, just looking forward to um, how, how Dr. unpacks this for us today. Awesome. When I was thinking about today, um, one of the things that crossed my mind was a quote, and I sent this to you, uh, Dr. John, at some point. Um, and I know what people mean with this, but I've also heard people misinterpret uh, this particular understanding. Um, but someone here called Kenneth G. Oates, I think, says, beware of the company you keep for they are a reflection of who you are or who you want to be. And now, that for a minute may sound like biblical advice. After all, bad company corrupts good morals. But I've also had friends who, well-meaning friends, who would advise you to interact with successful people. Uh, and our measure of success, at least as human beings, is, is one of riches and how much money you have. If you want to be a millionaire, rub shoulders with millionaires. Isn't that the modern day version 
of discrimination or partiality that John is talking about, I mean, James is talking about um, in, in chapter two. Um, and, and I know, uh, Dr. John, you, might, you must have a particular set of friends who, with whom you think alike, and, 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 and you choose your friends carefully. And I don't want to really undermine the definition of friends, but what advice would you have to some of us who seem to be to, who seem to go to the extreme? You look at someone, the way they are dressed, their shoes, measure them, and immediately determine that these cannot be my friends, maybe because they don't show signs of success. Wouldn't that be what James is talking about? Someone shows up and you give them a good seat. And a poor person shows up and tells them, hey, sit down here at my feet. What, what thoughts do you have for us Christians who might be struggling with not wanting to associate with failures and, and yet not show partiality at the same time? Or have we already crossed the line when we show or want to associate with those who we think are successful? Dr. John. Uh, yes, David. I, you, you know, the you're hitting on a point there that that I think really gets to the core of not just what we're dealing with in our world now, but what in the first century when James was writing to his, uh, you know, his readers, uh, what they would have been dealing with, and that is that there is a difference between an earthly definition of success or a worldly definition of success and God's definition of success. And, and one of the things clearly that uh, James is saying is that you should not look at someone's clothing uh, and you should not look at someone's, uh, you know, uh, bank account or um, even, you know, how they dress or how they uh present themselves as a sign of whether or not they're successful. Uh, and, and I know it's very difficult for us uh, because we, we all live in a material world and we have a very, um, you know, very difficult time separating the spiritual from the material. And the quote that you gave me, and I'll, and I'll uh, read it again, it says, be wary of the company you keep for they are a reflection of who you are or who you want to be. And, uh, and it's interesting because I do think that people see people who have money uh, or status or fame and their perception is, well, if I hang around this person, uh, then I'll become rich, uh, I'll become you know, wealthy, I'll become famous, I'll become like them. And uh, that's really not the definition of success that, that I derive. And certainly I think, especially how um, James addresses this. So it clearly was happening at his time. And David, you mentioned that uh, this book was, was a contested book, uh, whether or not it should be included in the original uh, you know, collection, the canon of scripture, 68 or 66 books. And part of the reason is that, that the specific mention of Jesus Christ in the book of James only occurs twice. It occurs in the first verse of the first chapter when James addresses himself, and then it occurs here in the first verse of the second chapter when he says, my brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord 
Jesus Christ. And, and what's interesting is Jesus himself, as a, as a model of success, uh, you know, by, by our standards, uh, and I would say by Christian standards, he's, he's the top of the pyramid. He is the pinnacle of success because he did exactly what God wanted him to do in God's way and according to God's timetable. But according to worldly standards, uh, Jesus would have been viewed as a, as a complete failure. Um, he, at the end of his life, uh, people rejected him. Um, you know, even his best friends kind of walked away from him and denied him. And, uh, and so that's one of the things that, that I think um, James would have been aware of, of course, because he's writing this, um, you know, in probably the early part of the, the 60s. Uh, meaning around 60 AD, because James himself, again, by worldly standards, was also a failure because he, he was stoned um, by order of uh, the head Pharisee or the, uh, the chief priest. Uh, and, and we get that not from the, the scriptures, but from uh, Josephus, that uh, it says James, who was the brother of Jesus, uh, was stoned, and that would have been in probably 68 or something thereabouts A.D. And, and it, what's very interesting is for us, you know, because we tend to think in, in terms of our brain, uh, we think money means success, fame means success, uh, you know, college degrees mean success, and that is definitely not God's definition. What would you say is God's definition of success? And, 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 and I'm going to go back to Joshua um, when he talks about um, meditating on his law um, and, and, and will be prosperous and successful. It's, it's interesting that you mentioned the disciples almost don't show any sign of success. You did talk about Christ. He would have been considered unsuccessful. And even James being being executed, you would consider that unsuccessful. Even today, if you had David to be died in prison, that 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 is unsuccessful. And even among Christians, we would look and think that is unsuccessful. There's a friend of mine I asked a question that if if Joseph died in prison, this is Joseph of the Old Testament, if he died in prison and never came out to be the person we remember him to be in Pharaoh's government, would we consider him successful? And, and that individual boldly said, no, he would not be successful. Then we forget that Joseph was able to overcome the temptation with Potiphar's wife, and that's what got him in prison, but immediately would think he's unsuccessful. But in summary, Dr. John, what would you consider what would you say is the definition, therefore, of success? Because it's clear money is not. And, and from what we see, most disciples, if we are to define success by money, we are not successful. But would you find a story or a reference in scripture that could help us better understand success? Why? Because <laughs> just thinking about what's going on right now, uh, with the economy, we thought we had crossed the dark part of the forest with this COVID-19, but it looks like there's gloom that is coming. And I, I, today when I was reading, I read, a, I read an, uh, a quote and someone was talking about an African proverb that says there's no feast that is too big for the sky. 
Um, and, and, and so I think they're trying to imply that any challenge is small compared to the hope uh, that God can give us. But again, it, we look like we are not going anywhere with when it comes to money and the broke people and it looks like the rich are prospering. They can afford these fuel prices, but we can't. And it can be confusing, but what would you say the definition of success is, Dr. John? Okay, David, I am going to quote from a guy who has thought about this a lot more than I have. I, I've thought about it, and when I heard this quote, I, I said, he's on to something. Because if you listen to this definition, Jesus was a rousing success, James was a success, Joseph was a success, David, all the people you just mentioned, and every single person that has followed God, including the people listening to my voice. This is a uh, theologian whose name is Pete Scazzaro, or Peter Scazzaro. He is a, a dynamite uh, theologian, and, uh, and I just finished taking a class from him. He says this, success is being the person God calls you to become and doing what God calls you to do in his way and according to his timetable. So, and that's it. And I'm gonna say it again, just so you can kind of piece all those together. Success is being the person God calls you to become and doing what God calls you to do in his way and according to his timetable. And I think, you know, David, you and I have talked a lot about, you know, your ministry and, and you know, things there. And, you know, we, we're working together on that. It, and, I, and I would just say, I think that's one of the things, too. You are successful and you are a success. And because you're doing that, you're being the person God calls you to become and doing what God calls you to do in his way and according to his timetable. Okay, and there's one other person that I know that you know very well who's also a success, and I saw that she put a question in there. <laughs> and Grace put the question in that says this, just as the body apart from the spirit calls for mourning, should we mourn for one with faith but no works? And, and it's interesting because that's the question I think that a lot of us have, which is, if someone is claims to be a Christian, but they have no works, or there are no real apparent works, should we be mourning for them? And, and the answer is yes, we should mourn for them because they are not being the person God calls them to become and doing what God calls them to do in God's way and according to God's timetable. Those people, may have a, a mental picture of who Jesus is, or they may have a perception of what it is that he wants them to do, but by virtue of the fact that they have no works, they're not doing what God calls them to do in God's way and according to his timetable. And so I think hopefully for your belief, or for your um listeners and and as a believer i think that's it's a freeing thing to think that my success is measured by god and and not by my neighbor or 
my parents or, you know, the people who sit under my teaching. Um, and there's a question Lynn put out. What's the name of the theologian? His name is Peter Scazzaro, P-E-T-E-R, Scazzaro, S-C-A-Z-Z-E-R-O. And that quote comes from November of last year. So November of 2021. He's written a book that's called Emotionally Healthy Discipleship. And, uh, and, and Peter's really on to something there that, that success is, you know, we have to get to the definition of success in the way that God defines success. Because ultimately, if we're followers of Jesus Christ, doing God's will is what defines success for us. And, and I think that's what defined it for Jesus. And that's why Jesus was the most successful person in the history of humanity, he succeeded in bringing us all to the throne of grace, uh, you know, of the Father. We're, we're, we're all able to come to the, the you know, the, the, the kingdom because of what Jesus did. And without him, without his success, we would all be doomed to failure no matter how much wealth and no matter how much prosperity or earthly, um, you know, material goods that we had. And so I think that's one of the things, and I think that's what James is saying here too, is don't look on the outside, look at God's definition of success. Awesome, interesting. Um... God's timing, God's call, and God's way. And I forget the fourth, but Elena, would you consider yourself successful? And I ask this because when you talked about God's timing, some of the men that God called today, my daughter was telling me that uh, Noah was 600 years when he was called to build the ark. At that point, you're past 50, you're past retirement, you're like 400, 500 years into bonus. And yet... Today, your measure of success is based on whether you're in the evening of your life or how much you have saved. But Elena, would you consider yourself successful? If not, do you have any questions for Dr. John? You can dodge the question that way. Daudi, I beg not to answer that question. (laughs) (laughs) I beg not to answer that question. Um, But (laughs) but yeah, it's, it's, it's... and it's a very, I, I like the definition he has shared of uh, the author, Peter. Uh, and it just gets me thinking and also just reflecting on the different things that I'm involved in and the different things I'm doing. I might be excited about them, but uh, are they what God has called me to do uh, in this time? Is it in God's timetable? It's I'm running my own timetable and schedule. So just... A whole reflection point it would be nice to uh, to hear how we can be able to gauge some of those things and 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 figure out if we are indeed in the timelines and following the ways. <laughs> yeah. Wow, interesting. Ladies and gentlemen, it's thirty thirty four minutes uh, past nine, and uh, we want to jump onto the second part of James chapter two as we continue with our conversation. And this is where Dr. John began by quoting verse 26, um, of course, summarizing most of the things that James talks about. But I'm going to read something that 
it's quite long. And, and so please bear with me. And I got this from, I think the website is called the Gospel Coalition. They did a great job in making a case for faith alone. And after I'm done, I'm going to hand over the mic to Dr. John to make a case for faith and works. <laughs> okay. Um, I mean, verse six is kind of difficult uh, to, to comprehend knowing what the scriptures teach concerning faith alone. And so here it's how this particular argument begins. This gentleman who put this together says the notion that we are saved by faith alone is anchored in the teaching of Jesus. For instance, Jesus commends the faith of the centurion, noting that he did not find such faith in Israel. That is in Matthew 8, 5 to 13. We see in the account of the sinful woman who broke into Jesus's dinner with Simon and the Pharisee, a stunning reminder of saving faith. This woman was well known for her sin, and she expressed her sorrow with the tears that fell on Jesus' feet. With her hair, with which she washed them dry, and with the kisses and perfume lavished on his feet, Jesus commended her love, but her love flowed out of the forgiveness freely received. Hence, the story concludes with a declaration, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. We have a dramatic indication in this story that forgiveness is by faith alone. And such faith brings peace. The story of the Pharisee and the tax collector also indicates that forgiveness and justification are not granted to the Pharisee who was so proud of his acts of religious devotion. Instead, Jesus pronounces that the one who is right before God is a tax collector who realizes, it, who realizes that his only hope is God's mercy. Jesus also teaches that blessings belong to the poor in spirit, to those who mourn over their sin, to those who are humble, to those who hunger for righteousness that isn't their own. Jesus' meals with the sinners and tax collectors point to the same truth. Such meals in the ancient world signified social acceptance. By eating with tax collectors, Jesus communicated acceptance, forgiveness, and love to those who have repented of their sin. The Gospel of John emphasizes the importance of faith using the verb believe 98 times to underscore the importance of faith. At one point, the Jews ask what they have to do to perform God's work. Jesus replies that they are to believe in the one he has sent. John repeatedly emphasizes that those who believe enjoy eternal life. And that's where our famous John 3.16 comes in. One is not saved by working for God, but by believing in God. Dr. John, I know that the argument in James is not a contradiction. I don't know how, but I just know. But how would you explain this dilemma, especially because scriptures seem to say it cannot be both. If by grace, then it's not works. It's one. Faith alone, Galatians 2.16 is quite brutal uh, towards James when it says, Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Then James comes from nowhere and says, Faith alone is dead. Dr. John, the mic is back to you. 
<laughs> yes, David. Well, thank you for those verses. Let me add one more to that, and that is Romans eight. Uh, sorry, Romans three twenty eight, which says this: For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Okay, and Paul is very distinct there. He's he's talking about justification and how justification really occurs. And one of the things you you could think that James and uh, and Paul are are at odds here, uh, and they're not. Uh, one of the interesting things, and and again, the many verses that you mentioned, there's there's a thought that in the Old Testament, okay, so before Jesus that the works of the law and people doing the works of the law somehow made themselves right by doing works, okay? And that those works were what saved them. And then Jesus came and then we get did away with the law and said, now all we have to do is have faith in Jesus. We don't have to have any works at all. We just have faith. And, and what we define as faith is not what James defines. What we define as faith is just mental assent. So in other words, if I, if I can think in my mind that I know who Jesus is and I know what Jesus did and I know what you know he came to do and what he has uh, provided, that it's that mental assent that will somehow work itself uh, into my salvation. And, and the reality is that's, that's exactly what James is talking about isn't actual faith because Satan knows who Jesus is. Satan knows who, what Jesus came to do. Satan saw Jesus hanging on the cross and saying, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. So, so having an intimate knowledge of who Jesus is and what Jesus did isn't actually enough. And, and I'll, it's interesting because we're on James here today. This morning in my uh, connection group, in the group that I uh, attend, we were talking about a similar passage that Jesus was teaching. And if you remember in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Jesus says in Matthew 5.20, something like this. He says, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And, and here's, here's why this whole thing about works. The, the Pharisees, according to doing works of the law, were the most righteous people of the whole of, of that time. And that's what was shocking to Jesus's hearers when he, he spoke the words of the Sermon on the Mount. Our righteousness has to exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. These guys who pray, uh, fast twice a week, they, they, you know, they, they give, you know, we know that they give because they make a public display of it. Um, and how could our works ever come to, to mean, uh, you know, to measure up to what those Pharisees have been doing? And so that's where the, the, the point is what the works of the law that Paul refers to are not the works that the Pharisees do, or frankly, what I would say is there are modern day Pharisees. There are Christians today who, who uh, you know, donate money uh, to a Christian cause so that their name can be put on a building, okay? And that's the same attitude that the Pharisees had 
in the first century. And, and what Jesus, I think, is saying is, no, what you have to have in you is a faith in God that actually is so convinced of God that you are willing to give and give generously without any credit at all. And that when you pray, you're going to pray and your prayer is going to be so uh, personal and, and quiet and focused with God that nobody is going to see you praying, but your prayer will have rewards and effects because God will reward you. And when you fast, you're not going to walk around like the Pharisees who fast and make it look like they're fasting. You're going to fast in the company of people who have no idea that you're fasting until they ask you, you know, would you like a piece of chocolate? And you say, no, thank you. And you may say, I'm I'm fasting. But you don't even have to say that. You just say, no, thank you. And this is part of the righteousness that surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees. And that's what James is talking about. There is a righteousness that comes by faith that has good works that you don't even have to hear the person say, I believe in God or I believe in Jesus. You can see their works and by what they do, their their care and love for their neighbor, um, their humility, like that's a very important aspect of, of a relationship with God. It's like, it's just the opposite of the success by worldly standards. So it's the person who, when you go into uh, a place and there's a person who is, uh, is maybe looking homeless or um, not well-dressed, it's the person who would just go over there to that person who's sitting by themselves and introduce themselves and ask uh, who they are and if they need some help and, and get to know them because that is exactly what Jesus would do. And so it's those kinds of works that, that I think what, you know, again, we, we tend to think along with some of the people in the first century, that the works of the law were Pharisaic observances. But what Jesus called the Pharisees was hypocrites. You see, he, Jesus wasn't fooled by the fact that they made long prayers and that they fasted and that they gave. Jesus called them hypocrites. He called, you know, and the word for hypocrite in the Greek is the Greek word for actor, you're, you're an actor, you're a fake, you're a fraud. And, and that's what, what James is saying here in chapter two is, you, if you act like these other people, like the Pharisees, if you give preference to someone who's well-dressed and who's, uh, who's very uh, well-to-do and has material success, if you give that person preference over the other person who's not well-dressed, um, you're acting like the Pharisees. You're acting like a hypocrite. And that's one of the reasons why even in this century, you know, thousands of years later, people who look at the church, they say, you know what? The church is filled with a bunch of hypocrites. At least they say that here in, in our Western culture in America. And they say, I don't want to have anything to do with that because that is how you treat people. Um, and so it's a challenge for us because what, James is talking about 
is what Paul is talking about in his letters, and it's also what Jesus talked about in the Sermon on the Mount. The character of God is an internal heart attitude that results in a living of the life that includes the works of the law. And so um, Grace also threw another thing in. She said, what's stopping me from doing the good work? And I think that's a really important thing. What prevents us as Christians from doing the good works? And the answer is there is an enemy who is an enemy of our souls, and he's an enemy of our Lord and Master, and he doesn't want good works to be done uh, out of a good heart attitude, because if we do those works with the heart attitude that God wants us to have, we will be a success. We will be the person that God calls us to be, and we will be doing what God calls us to do in his way and according to his timetable. And so each day we have little works to do that God is allowing as little tests for us. And, and God is measuring our success each day. And you know, it, David, I think it, this is the truth. Each time that we meet someone who is the least of these, we're being tested by God. And you know how Jesus in the gospels, how he says, you know what? When I was hungry, you fed me. When I, when I was in prison, you came to visit me. You know, when I was thirsty, you gave me drink. And, and, and those of us who do those things for people that can't do for themselves, Jesus is going to say, because you've done it for the least of these, you've done it to me. And that is success. Hmm. Wow, that's that's one encouraging to hear. And and let me ask, maybe I hope I understood you well. Um, I was trying to summarize this, especially at the beginning. Um, would you therefore say that James is not saying that you began in faith and your faith died because you failed to produce actions, would we therefore say that that faith, which does not produce actions, was not faith at all? Is that his way of saying it is not faith at all? It's dead. It never started. And so we cannot call it faith because it, even for the stories that I read, the quotations I read, concerning men that were saved by faith, their actions implied that they were saved by faith. Um, what kind of faith, how would you describe that faith today uh, that is dead, uh, Dr. John? And I know it's a very dangerous place to stand, to point at another and define their faith as dead or not, because we honestly cannot tell the state of each man's heart. But I also want to believe that sometimes we can tell by the actions what the man believes. And I'm just trying to really advocate for some of us who might be here and number one are doubting whether we are Christians <laughs> or not, maybe because of our actions. Going back to the question that Grace is asking, so what is stopping me from doing the good work that God has created me to do? And maybe recalling the words of Peter, I mean Paul, when he says, the good that I want to do, I do not do. And, and most of us may be found in that loop and right now might be thinking, well, I don't think my faith right now is alive. 
I also don't want to believe that gems in any way is indicating that there is works that can save us. Because when Christ answered that question, when men asked, what works must we do? He says, believe on the one that God sent and in referring to himself. But Dr. John, any more light on what that looks like today for some of us who might be listening in tonight? Yes, David, I, I'm glad you asked. And actually, let's let's go into the text because James gives two examples. One is a man and one is a woman. And he says, um, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? And you see, what's interesting is James is pointing out that even though Abraham was justified by his faith, his, his righteousness was credited to him by God, but it was that faith that then had to be tested when God said, okay, take Isaac up on the mount and, and he's the sacrifice. And so then Abraham could have said, well, God, you've already credited me righteousness. I have faith in you. I'm not going to do what you're asking me to do because uh, that would be, you know, killing my son and I'm not going to do that. Well, then Abraham, by that definition, would be a failure because he was not doing what God called him to do in God's way and when he called him. And so that's, that's an example that James uses. Then when he talks down a little bit farther, he says, in the same way also was not Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. So here's a woman who is an outcast and a prostitute, but she, knowing what God has told her to do is receive these Jews in this way and then let them out, okay? And, and I think what James is, is showing as he's giving us these examples, he's saying faith is doing what God calls you to do even when you think there might be consequences otherwise. And I think one of the things, and, and you know, when, when you ask, and I think that this is, it gets to our perception of ourselves. And, and I had a very good friend that I was talking to yesterday, and I asked this question because I think this is something that, um, that we all struggle with, uh, and that is our identity. Am I a sinner who is saved by grace? And, and the answer is, yes, I'm a sinner who is saved by grace, or am I a saint who occasionally sins? So am I a sinner saved by grace, or am I a saint who occasionally sins? And the answer is, if you aren't doing what God calls you to do in his way and according to his timetable, according to your own definition, you are still a sinner. When you decide to give your sin to Jesus and you, you know, it doesn't have, it's not the mechanism of how you do that, but when you give your sin to, to him, when your sin is imputed, when all of your sin, the past, the present, and all of your future sin is given to Jesus, then you now are declared a saint. 
you are now righteous because you have received the righteousness of Jesus and that's who you are. Your faith now is informed by your identity and you should look at yourself as a saint who occasionally sins. Okay, let me say it again. Once you've undergone the heart transplantation and Christ has taken the heart of stone from you and given you a heart of flesh, his, the new heart, the new transplant, when you're new in Jesus, you should now view yourself as a saint who is righteous but occasionally sins. A saint who is righteous and only occasionally sins is somebody who will be doing good works quite a lot. Not because they're trying to earn favor or they're earning salvation or anything like that. They just know that they're in, like uh, like in Ephesians 2, uh, 8, 9, and 10. It's by grace you've been saved through faith, so you've already been saved, but now we're gonna move on to those good works which God has prepared in advance for those of us who are called according to his purposes. So now we can be successful by being the person God calls us to become and doing what God calls us to do in his way and according to his timing. Now I don't have to worry about, am I saved, am I not saved? I know I'm saved, so I'm just gonna do the works that James says are the righteous works of one who has faith. And hopefully that helps to, to clarify it. Yes, it does um, in so many ways. Um, and, I, and I think it's us to understand that, yes, we are saved by faith alone, but eventually we are called to do good works that God has prepared for us. And, and for me, that's really that's really the summary. And I know, Elena, at some point your network was down, but are you in a position to maybe comment on some of the things that Dr. John is talking about or any other questions? I have one more for Dr. John. I hope he's able to summarize this in about four minutes. But Elena, any, any, any thoughts? Um, it's, it's, it's just been a very rich reminder that the good works are not things you're working at yourself. It, comes out of your walk with Christ and uh, just the righteousness that comes by faith. And with that, the good works then uh, come out. And I, I like to think through formulas and just thinking of success, doing God's things, God's way in his time. It's, it's, it's all just a reminder that it's all, it all then goes back to God. It's all about God and, and just me aligning myself with what it is and where he is sending me. And we have the Holy Spirit that he freely gives uh, for us to be aligned. So thank you very much, Dr. John. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Thank you. And a quick thought here that when Dr. John was speaking and re-emphasizing the definition uh, of success, would you want to say a word or two of encouragement to some of us who might have failed by this definition? And, and, and by that I mean maybe once in a while, I don't want to say once in a while, but not that it's a lifestyle, but in hearing this definition, I could have thought that I, I failed to do God's way. I mean, to live in his way, maybe 
not in his time. And there's an area that they can think about right now and would say, I am not successful in any way. Uh, how do I start? And, and let's assume that they are Christians. They've experienced saving faith in Christ Jesus. But there's an, maybe a point in their life that they are looking at right now and they know for sure that I'm not being successful by this definition. What would be the very good place to start in, in, in getting back to track of success by this definition, Dr. John? Yeah, thanks, David. I, I would say the word is repentance. And, and a lot of mm. times we think that repentance is a thing that you do once, you know, when you recognize that you're a sinner and then you repent and then you come into this new relationship. But uh, repentance, in fact, of, of when Martin Luther put the 95 theses on the door at Wittenberg, the first one was that repentance is, is, a, is meant to be a continual thing throughout the life of a believer. And so we, uh, you know, First uh, John uh, chapter 1, it says this, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sin, God who is faithful and just will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so what God is in the process of doing is, is you know, yes, he's, he's giving us a path, but we're gonna, we're not gonna be perfect in in executing the plan. So there'll be times that we fall off of the path, and and success is recognizing that and confessing it and getting back on the path. And so I think that that that's you know it's expected by God. It's not that God is sitting there waiting to punish us. He knows that each one of us has uh, limitations. I mean, he's made us uh, with human flesh and, and you know, the ability to choose wrong. And, and so, of course, we're going to choose wrong from time to time. Uh, but also, and I think uh, as Eleanor mentioned, you know, we, we have the Holy Spirit in us. We have the DNA of God dwelling within us to guide us and lead us and comfort us and counsel us. And it's that Holy Spirit in us that convicts us when we're off track. And so if we're feeling the conviction of the Holy Spirit, the right thing to do, and we can be successful tonight, by the end of the night, we can be successful by just coming to God and saying, Lord, I've blown it. You know, here I'm confessing to you and, and turn back around and get on the right path. And I think God will delight to then show us the path to light our way and to bring us into the success that he has defined for us. Wow, it, it's been a beautiful conversation with you, Dr. John. And I do love how we've ended this conversation in, in relation to one action. And if any one of you here has recognized in one way or another that we are not living in the definition of God's success, doing his will according to his timing, um, I pray that once this show is over, we'll take a moment to pray before we go to bed and tackle next week that we will turn around because that's what repentance is. And if anyone here is listening in tonight and they do not know Christ as Savior, I pray that you will trust him tonight for salvation. He said to all who believed him, to all who received him, he gave them the right to become children of God. 
And I pray that tonight you will come to that saving knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. In John 3.16, again, he loved the world so much that he gave this one only begotten son that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. This is a call to you if you're listening in tonight. But also, let me also give you a chance to just take a moment and pray for a friend, an uncle, sister, brother, or the border guy or the baba who may not know Christ as savior. Um, I, I like to start at a place where we can ask them the question, how may I pray for you? Send them a text tonight and ask them how you may pray for them. And when they do, please do pray for them and pray that God will give you the means to meet whatever their need is. It's called pray, care, and share. And when you come to the third point there of sharing, once you've cared for them, then you win the right to share the good news. I was talking to some friends last Sunday, and it's interesting that when I share the gospel with them, I asked them the question, do you know what the gospel is? And they say, yes, we know it means good news. But I did not think they really understood what good news is. And I shared this on Sunday uh, today. And I told them a story. I don't know how true this story is, but I've heard the story of men that had to abandon their village to go fight off the enemy before the enemy reached their village. But they told the women that um, if we are not back by this particular time, for this time we'll assume three days, if you're not back in three days, burn down the village and move on to the next one because we would have lost the battle. But these men fought and fought to protect their village before the enemy could reach the village. But they were not in time to warn the women that they should not burn down the village. But one of them managed to run so fast and get to the village before the women could burn down the village. And all he did was to simply shout on the main street. He says, the battle has been won. And because he had been running for a long distance, he collapsed and died. And this man, they built a monument for him at the place where he died. Why? Because he came bearing good news. And I think that's a small picture of what Christ because you already won the battle on the cross, but men do not know. And I think it's our call. I was going to ask, what is it that God has called us to do? He has told us to go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them everything he has commanded us. And let's start there by sharing the good news of Christ Jesus. Dr. John, we've come to the end of our time here. Is there anything that we could have left out that you feel we need to know just before we come to the end of our time? Dr. John. Uh, no, David, I, was ju- I, I would just say, and echoing what you said, I was so encouraged when you were playing the Chris Tomlin song, Is He Worthy? Because to me, the message, every people and tribe, every nation and tongue, that's who this good news is, is for. It's for everybody all around the globe. It's not, uh, you know, it's not only reserved for, as James would say, it's not for the wealthy and those people who are, you know, sitting uh, up in the, in the front, you know, in, in the kingdom. Uh, we are all brothers and sisters, and, and I'm just so thrilled uh, to be part of, of your ministry there, David, and, and to be talking with your listeners again. Yeah. Sundays at 9 p.m. East Africa time.